0: Alright, Revelation chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and get there. Uh, that's where we're going to be getting started this morning. We'll make it to chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, we just launched a uh, series on the book of Revelation. Uh, looking at uh, this beautiful prophecy and, uh, and exploring the different perspectives and ultimately um, desiring for God to stir our hearts in eager expectation uh, for the return of Christ and uh, there are a lot of spin-off conversations that are happening about the end times, and a lot of uh, a lot of life group feedback already from this weekend. I know you guys are having incredible conversations about it, um, and we're excited about what God is going to do in this series. Um, so we last week um, we started with some foundational help to get us start. Excuse me, started. Um, if you plan on being a part of the series, I encourage you to go back on our website, uh, listen to uh, the sermon from last week, just to have those. Uh, foundational tools and bearings on on where we're going, but um, we're going to go ahead and dive in pretty quickly today. So, just a little um, overview: the first three chapters of of Revelation is going to deal with um, a lot of what's going on in the first century. Now, there's some perspectives that would pull that into the future as well. We'll look at some of those perspectives. Um, here's how I compare uh, the: this is what I compare the Book of Revelation to. It's a lot like wading out into the ocean. Um, and if you've ever walked out into the ocean in general, um, it seems like the shallow water goes out for a ways. And so you could be wasted deep for 100 yards, but as you do so, you know eventually the bottom's going to fall out. And it's going to give way to depths that are beyond what you can handle or what you could even comprehend and so really here I'll just tell you up front the bottom's going to drop out around chapter four and that's we're really going to get out into the deep water so for the next six weeks we're going to begin just slowly wading out into the water looking at um, some of the the symbolism and some of the things that are going to prepare us to do the final majority of the book of Revelation so we're going to go ahead in chapter one and get started in verse 10 and so here's what's going to happen today Last week we looked at in the first nine verses um, primarily this this beautiful description of Jesus and the way we're supposed to see him and the way we're supposed to expect him to return. And so Part of the description from last week, he will come as the ruler of all kings on earth. He will come as the one who loves us. He will come as the one who died for our sins. He will come as one who, who exists outside the bounds of time as we understand it. And he will come as the one who is the author, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is writing the story that we call the human experience. And so we saw that last week. This week we're going we're gonna to get even a little bit deeper into the imagery of Jesus that's going to show up periodically throughout the rest of the book. And so we want to start with the right view of Jesus. So when it comes up and we hear these descriptions of him, we have some type of understanding of what those uh, allusions or or images are supposed to explain to us about who he is. And so we're going to start in verse 10 and just do some more refreshers. So verse 10, Revelation 1. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum and to uh, Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. So we're going to stop right there and, and, and do a little bit of refresher from last week. So, uh, these four primary views that we um, tend to see on the book of Revelation. Now, there are many views outside of this, and some are combinations of the two, but just to give you some, some understandings, there, there is one camp of folks who primarily look at the, be- the book of Revelation as past tense. Like, until you get to the big events of chapter 19, 20, 21, like, all that has already happened in the first century. That's a, a past tense or a preterist view of the book of Revelation, Okay. Then you have another camp of folks that fall into the historic view. I want to give you some some more explanation here. These are folks who see the book of Revelation playing out. At the moment John sees this revelation, time begins unfolding. It's almost as if a corner is turned in human history and begins unfolding. So we, in 2015, were somewhere in the book, but so much has already unfolded, and we're getting closer to the end of the book. And so this is this view that the churches then in Revelation uh, chapter 2 and 3 represent periods of time in church history. And so, for example, we're going to talk about the church of Ephesus today. Those who are in that camp would see the the church of Ephesus not only pertaining to that actual church that was in Ephesus, but on a broader sense, reflecting the first century church as a whole. And so here's some just some bearings on that. If you're from a historic perspective, the church in Smyrna then would uh, represent Um, the the time of the church fathers. So after the first century, uh, moving forward uh, all the way to 313, then the church of Pergamum would reflect the time that is uh, heavily influenced by uh, Constantine, which is 313, moving forward to 600 A.D. Then the church of Thyatira, uh, reflecting the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, 600 to 1500. And then the church of Sardis then would then reflect most... Likely uh, the time of the Reformation. Uh, this is Luther and Calvin and many of the church reformers, 1500s to 1700s. The Church of Philadelphia representing the 1700s to the 1800s. And the Church of Laodicea, the modern church era. So there are some in that camp who kind of see these churches then reflecting not just actual churches and cities in John's time, but then symbolically reflecting periods of time in church history. We'll look at why, along the way, why some people draw that conclusion. What was going on in those different periods of time? Um, Interestingly enough, if you are a church history buff, uh, Calvin and Luther held to this view. It was a really popular view during the time of the Reformation. And they actually believed that the Pope of that time was the Antichrist. And So this was a really popular view in the the period of time from the 1500s to 1700s. And then you have the symbolic perspective, which is a camp of folks who say don't associate any specific events in time to the imagery in uh, Revelation. It's all symbolic. It's more conceptual, you know, thematic, and so it doesn't necessarily reflect. So don't try to figure out the timeline. And Then you have more of a futuristic view, which would say everything after chapter 3, after you get past the churches, all of that is still yet to unfold somewhere down the line in human history. It might be starting right now, but the majority of it still is left to unfold. So... I'm giving you those bearings so that as you, even outside of our sermons, as you're studying on your own, as you're reading things, you're downloading podcasts, or you're, um, you're watching YouTube videos on the end times, you have some bearings on where people might be coming from who are trying to explain to you uh, what's going to happen in the end times, and so we are taking this approach, so let's just ask the question, why are we taking this approach? One, because... Um, As a church, we hold in high regard the word of God. And so what we want to do is anywhere the word of God is clear and concrete, we want to land firm there without wavering and say, thus saith the Lord. But in areas that that are more speculative, areas that are less clear maybe, we want to land softly. We want to say there's room here for maybe multiple perspectives And so, we don't want to tell you necessarily what to think about those things, especially as it pertains to the book of Revelation. We want to give you the tools. We want to pray for you and encourage the Holy Spirit to work in your life so that you might have a better understanding. And what are we after anyway? We're after a greater expectation and an eager excitement about the return of Jesus. That's the thing we're looking forward to. Whether you consider yourself a preterist or a futurist or a a historist, whichever camp you're in, that's fine, as long as we're all looking forward to the same thing the return of Jesus. And so that's going to set us up then to talk for a minute or to look at this beautiful imagery that comes out in verses 12 through 16. So let's pick it up in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw some things. We'll get into that in just a minute. So remember from the first few verses, he heard a voice like a trumpet that was behind him. And so now John is turning. Some commentators and biblical scholars will will note the emphasis on turning. It's mentioned twice here. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw. So this idea that, that this is the turning point in human history. That what John is about to see is about to go down in his time moving forward. And so he's turning to see the voice. Verse 30, So here's what he sees. I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with his robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like White wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp, two edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. There's some beautiful imagery here of the return of Jesus. It doesn't sound a whole lot like his first coming, does it? We get a few snapshots of this Jesus in his first coming, but for the most part, he came right, born as a baby, meek and mild, very humble, a servant among men. And so as we move forward in the Revelation, looking primarily to the point of his return, at the very beginning, Jesus wants us to be expecting right the right Jesus here not looking for him to be born in a stable, in a manger of a virgin, but he's coming back in different fashion. He's coming back with a different look in his eyes, right? He's coming back even with a different intent or purpose. And so we're gonna look into these different aspects that were described here. Nine different attributes ascribed to Jesus. Now, it's important to know along the way, we're gonna help you out with this, but a lot of this imagery comes from the Old Testament. So we've got some imagery here from Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, if you want to go back and look at those particular passages from the Old Testament. The first thing I'm going to note is this. Um, he's described here as a son of man. Um, that phrase comes up in the New Testament a couple of times, and some people get tripped up over that as, as a description of Jesus. Why do we call him the son of man? Well, that comes from Daniel this, uh, this prophetic imagery of the one who would come. And so Jesus is described as a son of man, or you might think of it like this, as one who comes in human likeness. And so in the Old Testament, looking forward hundreds of years for the time that Jesus would come to earth, describe him as God coming to earth in human likeness. That's what that phrase refers to, son of man. God in human likeness. And so we saw then Jesus come in human likeness, right? Born like a baby cry got hungry when he was sad he cried tears when his bones were you know crushed or his skin was pierced he felt pain he came as God in human likeness first coming so now second coming he's coming again in human likeness as a son of man now the imagery we get here though is what he's he's gonna be uh, turning I saw seven golden lampstands which we'll unpack in just a second And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So we get this imagery of these seven lampstands, right? And he's amongst them. He's standing in the middle of them. So we need to figure out what's going on here. So the lampstands, as we'll find out as this passage um, begins to unfold, represent the church. And so we'll get more specifically to that in just a few minutes. So we have Jesus here in the midst of the lampstands, which... Revelation is going to tell us, re- reflect the church. Jesus is standing in the midst of the church. Now, the, um, the next thing I want to point out here is what he's wearing. He's wearing a long robe with a sash. And so, oftentimes, we'll get those depictions, or a cheesy version of that depiction... In modern-day images of Jesus, where he's got the hair product in, you know, he's evidently he's had a straightener or a perm, depends on which version you get. He's all cleaned up. His beard has been trimmed, really nice and neat. He's got on the white robe and the purple sash. Now, I think that that could be too weak a vision of what we're getting here, but the imagery is very similar. He's not, he's not coming in a loincloth. He's not coming, again, in swaddling clothes. He's coming fully clothed, and his clothing reflects something about the nature of his coming. And so this imagery for us would be, um, would be understood best as, as a priestly or, a, or the, the clothing of a dignitary. That's what this clothing was used for in this particular time. This looks a whole lot like an important person just showed up. And, and oftentimes, this is this description or the way a priest would be dressed with this long flowing robe all the way to the ground, and a sash. So we get this priestly image of Jesus here. So that the, go- the long robe and the golden sash, imagery of a priest. Now the next thing that's described is his hair. His hair was white, like wool, like snow. Two things to point out here. So this idea of having white hair, um, just like in our culture today, um, is a reflection of wisdom, life experience, um, the ability to discern things accurately and make wise decisions, right? Amen? That's what gray hair reflects. Same thing for this culture here. That's why I'm letting my beard grow out because I don't have it up here anymore. So I've got to show you that there's some wisdom happening here. So that, that was, that's part of that imagery that Jesus is not coming as a boy who will grow in wisdom and stature. That's how he came the first time. He's going to come already established in wisdom and stature. But there's an overemphasis here on the whiteness of it, white as wool, white as snow, which then also reflects purity. This is um, like in the Psalms, you see this come up. David prayed this in Psalm 51 when he asked God to forgive him of his sins, to cleanse him, that he might be as white as snow. And so we get this, this imagery of established stature and wisdom, but also purity and holiness. There is no sin. There's no sin to be to be seen in this particular imagery. White hair, white wool like snow. Then the next part, I love this imagery here. His eyes were like a flame of fire. I'm getting the idea that it's more than he's just giving me that look. I think my children think that I give them the look of the the eyes of the flame of fire sometimes, right? When they're in trouble. But like this is serious right here. We're, We're supposed to see something in his eyes that would grab our attention. His eyes were like a flame of fire, So I think what we're seeing here is the ability for God to see below the surface into the depths of who we we are. It's a a vision of of judgment and discernment. You can't hide from these eyes. That's what I think we're seeing here. You can't hide from them. There will be a point in time where you are fully exposed. Your deeds, righteous or unrighteous, right? Everything about you will be fully exposed. Right now we operate partially exposed. Right? And some of us barely exposed, right? Hiding, pretending, putting on the facade. There's going to come a point in time where the eyes of Jesus look into the depths of who you are. And this is how God is described, even all the way back into First Samuel 16, where the prophet Samuel is looking for the next king to anoint. And this is where the boy David comes into the story who would later become King David. But early on, Samuel's looking at his older brothers who it made a lot more sense that these would be the guys God would want to anoint. And here's just a quote from, from 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 6. When they came... He looked on Eliab. So when all the, the, uh, David's brothers came before Samuel, he's a prophet, he looks at the brothers, he looks on Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This has got to be the one God wants to use as a king. This brother makes sense. Verse 7 says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks, at the, looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks On the heart, I think this is this imagery we're getting from Jesus: these fierce eyes, eyes of fire that pierce and can look into the depths of who we are. Feet like bronze. um, This is most likely military imagery. So, in this particular age, to be a well-equipped army meant that you had. You had bronze armor or some type of metallic armor, whether that was the, the, the breastplate or the helmet. Here it's the foot imagery. And I think what we could deduce from this is that if a soldier has his feet covered, probably all the rest of him is armored as well. This is a well-armed or armored soldier here. This is the idea of this soldier is ready for battle and he has put on the full armor of his, um, of his army and he's ready to go to war. Think about that, the having bronze shoes. Man, that sounds heavy. When you begin to think about an army walking into battle, marching in cadence, the thum, thum, thud, thud, and how that would be amplified by this all this armor on, and especially these heavy bronze shoes, we're beginning to get this imagery, not only of a battle that will come, but, the, but, but what it's going to feel like and sound like When the the king of kings wages war, he's coming as a soldier. And there is this loud, resounding cadence of boom, 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 coming. Feet were like bronze, reflecting his strength and his power. And I would say this, the inevitable defeat of his enemies. This is how he's marching into battle. There's no hesitation here. Going straight at it. The next thing that he has described is his voice is like the roar of many waters. This is going to come up um, a couple more times in Revelation. And it's also going to be used to describe our voices collectively in the end times. We just sang a song. That last song we sang before um, I came up and we prayed over Jeff and Randy. That was, most of those lyrics come right out of Revelation. There are songs we're going to sing together that are already scripted and written. There are going to be some beautiful moments of worship. And, and the way that our voices coming together is described in Revelation. We'll see this in 5 and I think in 7 and, and later on towards the end. is like the sound of roaring waters. So in my mind, I'm, I'm picturing. I've never been to Niagara, um, but I'm, that's the sound I have in my, in my head. Just this, this resounding sound of power. And that's the sound of his voice here. Like the sound of many waters. This imagery... It's found in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Um, Ezekiel 1, um, the, the, uh, the beings that are described in Ezekiel 1, that's coming later on. I don't want to steal too much from later on in the series. But the, the, the sound of their wings is described this way. These beings that I think will be described again in Revelation 4 that look like these creatures and their wings. When their wings are pounding and they're flying, it sounds like the sound of many Roaring waters. And then later on in Ezekiel 43, verse 2, um, this is what we read And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And so we get this imagery that that not only is the sound of the, these angelic creatures in heaven, but God himself sounds this way when he comes, like the sound of many roaring waters we we'll get into some more imagery now. In his right hand he held seven stars. Now there's some quite a bit of speculation over what these stars reflect. Um, some in the Jewish culture, um, when they hear stars, think that they think automatically angels. That was, a, that was a prominent understanding among the Jews of this time that the stars represented angels. We even see, you know, even in the birth of Christ, there's a, there's a, there's a prominent um, star guiding and you have angelic beings there and so not that the stars are angels but there was a close association with so stars oftentimes symbolize angels so this is one of the options um, the Greeks understood the stars to be associated with the gods and so there's a lot of speculation over what, what we're getting at here in the fact that there are seven stars but here's what we need to get where are the seven stars? in his hand this idea of both protection and control. So whatever they resemble or reflect, symbolize, we want to see Jesus as the one who's in control of the seven stars. Whether they're seven angels, which by the way, angel in the Greek language could also be translated messenger. So some would say, well, these reflect then the messengers of these churches, maybe the pastors. So different views on what these stars mean or symbolize, but the point is the same, Right? that Jesus is the one who holds them in his right hand. Then the next thing we read is about a two-edged sword, sharp as a two-edged sword. And so automatically, um, for those of us who've been in church for a while and we've read the book of Hebrews, we go to Hebrews 4. We, we've heard that description before, that the word of God is actually like a two-edged sword. matter of fact, Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But I want to point out something. There's something actually significantly different about what we just read in Revelation and then what we read in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 is describing the word of God, and the word for sword here is actually um, machaira, which was a short Roman sword, small And the imagery is more of like a surgical tool that it's used for discernment, piercing into the depths of who we are. And so God's word is is compared to that small Roman sword, a double-edged sword, that can pierce and discern and and, and cut apart and and, and tell the difference between good and evil. And so that's the imagery of Hebrews, but the imagery of Revelation is quite different. The word here is is totally different. The word is uh, Romphia. That's my best attempt at the word. And this is actually a description of a, so, a sword that was used in the Calvary. A much longer, bigger sword. Not one you would use for surgery, but one that you would bring with the horses in the Calvary to make a statement. Saying what? We're here for victory. And so this description that's unfolding for us of Jesus as a soldier, he is equipped with a long these were the, uh, the, the tration swords that were used by the, the cavalry in charges in battle. That's the imagery we're getting of Jesus here. He's got this long two-edged sword ready to march the cavalry to charge into battle. And then the last description here, a face like the sun. This is all throughout your Bible describing God, like going all the way back even to to Moses and the Ten Commandments in Exodus 34. He came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. And when he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. He He had what looked like a sunburn because he had been before the presence of God and the people of Israel saw that on him. At the transfiguration, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John up onto a mountaintop experience, and they watch him transfigure from meek and mild Jesus to the glorious Jesus we're seeing here. It's called the transfiguration. Matthew 17, verse 2 says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. That was back in the Gospels. Of course, in Revelation, we get to Revelation 21, almost to the end of Revelation. And the city, Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? Because for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And so that imagery is going to come up some more in the book of Revelation. So before we go any further, we get this thematic imagery of Jesus as a priest, as a ruler, as a soldier, and as a glorious deity. And so from the opening of Revelation, whatever we saw in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about Jesus, what we're seeing now is that he's coming back and he's going to look different. And not that these are literal descriptions, but there's thematically this description. He's coming back right, with a, with a different purpose. He's no longer coming as the meek and mild lamb ready to lay his life down for the sins of many. He's now coming what? To judge the living and the dead with eyes that can see beyond the, below the surface into the depths of who we are. There'll be no hiding from this Jesus. He's coming with imminent victory. Now, verse 17. So John responds. This is... This is good. I love it when biblical authors are just honest. Revelation 1, 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Good response, right? Whatever John was describing that he saw, he wants us to know. Here's how I responded. I fell at his feet and I played dead. But here's what happens, but he laid his right hand on me saying, remember, because he's the king of all kings, but he's also, what, the one who loves us, right? And so while he is glorious enough to be feared, he has loving intent towards us, and look what he does with John. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades, That's not the first time John had ever heard Jesus say something like that. Going all the way again back to the Gospels, Jesus is talking to his disciples about who they think he is, and Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son, of the living God. And Jesus goes on to tell them, what? That he's going to be giving them the keys to the kingdom, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. And so John had heard Jesus talk this way, and, and Jesus is saying to John, the disciple in whom he loved, hey, don't be scared. It's me. I am the first, I'm the last. You were there when I died, but behold, I, I live forevermore. And I now hold the keys to death and Hades. And if I hold the keys to death and Hades, there's nothing for you to be scared of. Now, Christ's followers, right? Us today. Like that we, we were talking in a life group about the things going on in our world and how our tendency is to, to feel fear. For our, our, especially for our children and our children's children. And, and so I, in this moment I hear Jesus, the ruler of all rulers, who loves us, placing his hand on us and saying, it's okay, we can, we can walk through Revelation together. It's going to be okay. And the one who loves you, fear not. Why? Because I hold the keys to death and Hades. And if I hold the keys, what can, what can man do to you? What could happen to you that I can't undo? What could happen to you that's bigger than me? Fear not. So then he gives John some instructions in 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. So John writes it down. This is Revelation. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. could be the messengers. could be literal angels that God has sent to the seven churches. Churches, we're not quite sure, but remember where they are. They're in Jesus' right hand. So he says that um, the mystery of the seven stars, that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's we'll stop here for a minute. Um, this imagery of lampstands comes from the Old Testament temple. Um, the menorah was this golden lampstand that the Israelites were instructed to Piece together to make, to fashion, to place in the temple. And what would happen is the priests would come in on a daily basis and tend to these candles to keep them lit. Two things. One, practically, they gave light to uh, this area of the temple so the priests could carry out their daily duties. But two, that light reflected the presence of God, this ongoing, non ending presence of God. So it was really important they kept them burning, both for practical and for symbolic reasons. Um, this is Exodus 25, you just want to make a note and go back and read about the original description, um, in Zechariah 4, um, here's, some, here's some imagery as well, Zechariah 4 from the Old Testament, the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man, So Zechariah is saying this, that an angel came and talked with him, um, listen to this description, came and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep, verse 2 of Zechariah 4, and he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it and the seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it then skipping down to the end of verse 10 these seven are the eyes of the lord which range throughout the whole earth and so there's in the old testament for the jewish people this imagery of the seven lampstands reflected the eyes of god or the presence of god his constant awareness of what is going on if they were prone to forget that god was watching over them they could be reminded by this ongoing light this reflection or symbolism of the presence of god and so on one hand we see these lampstands reflecting the presence of god then in the churches But what we also know is what Jesus taught us about light. Matthew 5, he says this, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But instead, they put it on a, what, a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that, you may, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So as Christians, we've been called to be a light in the world Right, And so we're actually what we're seeing here, I think, is this beautiful connection between the two. That the presence of God in our lives is like a light. It's, 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 it's a reminder of his presence. It's a reminder that he hasn't forsaken us. But as we go out into the world and we work on good deeds, what we're doing is we're shining that light outwards towards others. It's both. So the seven churches are represented here by what? Lampstands. The presence of God residing in that church, but also the work God is doing through those people to shine light out into the darkness. All right, now what we're ready to do is we're ready to move into Revelation chapter 2 now and look at the first church that's described. This is the church in Ephesus. Church in Ephesus, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, here's what he says. So as you can picture Jesus walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, he stops at the one that represents Ephesus and here's what he's saying and John's writing this down. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. Now there's going to be a pattern with each of the churches. In most of the churches, as Jesus addressed them, he's going to talk about the things that they do well. Okay, not all of them, but most of them, he's going to talk about the things they do well, but he's also going to come back, and he's going to bring out the things that they're struggling in the things that need repentance, the things that need to be corrected. So he starts off with a description of what the church in Ephesus was doing well. He says, I know your works. You're, really, you're hard workers. You're good at serving. I know your toil and your patient endurance. church in Ephesus was experiencing some significant persecution at this time. Matter of fact, it's most likely the place that um, John was at before he got to Patmos. He was exiled most likely from Ephesus. That's the place where they tried to kill him. This is the apostle who's writing this down. So for the Christians who were still in that city, patient endurance was a pretty big description. I know your works, I know your toil, and your patient endurance. And he goes on to say this, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. What does he mean? But you have tested those who call themselves apostle and are not and found them to be false. And we're going to see in a minute, there was a lot of false Doctrine and heresy spinning around in, in, in Ephesus. And they evidently had done a good job at keeping false doctrine out. Which if you read through the New Testament, especially in Acts, that makes sense. There's a strong emphasis from the Apostle Paul in Ephesus to keep the doctrine sound. To keep false doctrine out. Matter of fact, in chapter 20 of Acts, um, it says that Paul called the elders from Ephesus to come to him. This is in Acts uh, 20, 28, and thirty through thirty, he says, he invites the elders from Ephesus to come to this is all the way back in Acts. He says to them, this is just after the church is planted. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church, which he ordained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells will rise men speaking twisted things to draw you away to draw you away disciples after them to draw away the disciples after them and so what we're going to find is even one of those men was one of the potentially one of the first six deacons from Acts 6 Nicholas started a following of false doctrine and this church had done a good job at protecting the doctrine of the gospel and not letting false teachings in you read first and second Timothy Ephesus is the place where Timothy was receiving these letters from Paul and how he emphasizes sound doctrine, not swaying from the gospel into false teachings. And so it makes sense then to us, right, that the church in Ephesus is is being praised for this. Did a great job of holding fast to to the sound doctrine of the gospel. but I have this against you. I hold this against you. So verse three, for I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. And so in almost all the churches, he's gonna say, I have this against you. Here's where you're you're wrong. Here's where you've drifted. Here's where you've moved from soundness into unsoundness. From Here's where you've moved from my will in your life to doing your own will. And he says, here, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. It's interesting in Ephesians, when Paul's writing the letter to this church in Ephesus, one of the things he praises them for is their love. So there was a time where this church was not only good at maintaining sound doctrine, enduring persecution, but they were really good. They were really good at expressing love towards God and love towards one another. And he says, but I have this against you. Something's changed. You've abandoned your first love. Now Jesus himself had told his disciples in John 13, a new commandment I give to you to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, all people will know what? You are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what is the mark of those who are the disciples of Jesus? Is it all the ways that they serve God? No. What is it? It's the love. The love they have for him and the love they have for one another. If you're truly mine, it'll be obvious by the way you love Then we go back to warnings from Jesus, Matthew chapter 7. He says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he talking about here? Here on earth, all throughout church history, there's going to be a lot of folks who would say this, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So they had forsaken this relationship with Jesus. It's almost like a Mary-Martha situation, right? Martha was a sister busy in 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 the kitchen and making sure everything was taken care of, and Mary was sitting where? At the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And it's almost like the church of Ephesus had drifted away from being at the feet of Jesus back into the kitchen, doing lots of stuff for him, but spending no time with him. And they had forsaken their first love. This is what he says in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Meaning what? There was a time where they were good at it. Where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Just for a moment, let's remind ourselves of what repent means. Repent is not stop sinning. That's part of repentance. But repentance means to turn. To turn from and turn to. To turn from sin or pursuing self-righteousness or selfishness or your own ambitions. Turning from and turning to Christ. And so what is he saying? Come back to the relationship we had at first. That's what I'm calling you to do. Repent. Turn. I'm proud of you for keeping the sound doctrine. Right? Right? I'm proud of you for your hard work and your toil. I'm really proud of you for enduring persecution and suffering. But it all means nothing, it means nothing if you lose your relationship with me. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, we'll read that in a minute. What does he say? It's like a resounding gong. Like a loud banging noise. Remember where you have fallen. Verse 6 and 7 of Revelation 2 he reminds them again, yet this, yet, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. These were the followers of Nicholas, one of the first men chosen as deacons. And Acts 6 is what we understand. We don't know a lot about their teachings, but they're also compared to those who followed um, Balaam and other um, different religions of the day. And so We don't know specifically what the false doctrine was that these, these followers were bringing into the church, but the Ephesians had rejected it. I don't care if you're one of the men who uh, were originally chosen as a deacon and the apostles laid their hands on you. If If you're preaching a different gospel, you can't bring it in this place. And so he's, again, commending them that they hated the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then this beautiful verse here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. He who has an ear, let him hear. Now, if you remember from last week, there's a beautiful promise of blessing in the first three verses of Revelation. The promise is what? Blessed are those who read the the words of Revelation out loud. Blessed are those who hear it and keep it. The word here there is a kuo. It's a Greek word, and it's a really important word because it's a word Jesus uses a lot. When he talks about, here's these words of mine and does them in Matthew 7, it's the same word. It's more than I'm talking and you hear me and you can repeat back to me what I say. It's that moment as a parent where you get down on the eye level with your kiddos and say, do you hear me? And what you mean by that is what? Do you understand what I'm asking of you in such a way that you're going to respond? It means to hear and to get in a way that you're going to obey. That's what the word means. And so the blessing in verse 3 of Revelation 1 is what? Blessed are those who read the words of the Revelation out loud. Blessed are those who hear it, like that. Get it and do what? Keep it. And so now here we have this beautiful promise given to the church of Ephesus. What? He who has an ear, let let him hear. This is a warning. This is intended to awaken your soul that you might what? Turn repent, come back to your first love. And this is what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. And we'll get into that imagery um, down the road when we get closer to the end of Revelation. So remember, there are different perspectives on Revelation. One perspective is this is all about the church in Ephesus and has no symbolism beyond that. We can see then some truth in that, right? Some reality there. We can look at Acts 20. We can look at the the book of Ephesians that was written to this church. We can look at the letters written to 1 Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy. And there's a lot of evidence that these were the things going on, in fact, in this particular church at John's time. Matter of fact, he had just potentially come from this church. That's where he had been exiled from, the the place probably where he was worshiping uh, potentially, or at least he was being supported by the believers there. He had just come from Ephesus. He was very familiar with what was going on in the church. And so we can see, definitely can see the connection to Ephesus here. We can also see some connection to um, the first century church as a whole. Just in general, um, there was a lot of heresy spinning and stirring. And so the, the reason we have the gospel today and the word of God today was because by and large the church protected it and kept it and kept out the false teachings and the false doctrines. Gnosticism and dualism and all these, all these different influences from world religions and all these things were coming against the church early on and the church fought well to preserve the word of God. We could see that. We can also see in the midst of that, if you look at church history, you can see a forsaking of the first love. Such an emphasis on the doctrine that there began to be a de-emphasis and even a loss of an emphasis on a personal relationship, a love relationship with Jesus. And so you could see that perspective where Ephesus then re- symbolizes the first century church. But I think the greater question that we want to ask is, what does this mean for us today? How do we, in 2015, read these verses and hear Jesus speaking to us? And what does it mean for us and to us? I think, I think about what um, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, and it reminds me a lot of our culture. Let me just read these words to you. This is the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. He says, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Verse 3, if I give away all I have and deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, when we look at our church culture as a, as a whole, we were talking about this in Life Group, especially here in the South. I know some of you may have moved here from other parts of the country and may or may not have experienced this. But when I think back on like my grandparents' generation, um, growing up here in the South, everybody was a Christian. It wasn't a question. It was where do you go to church? Not are you a Christian or not, but where do you go to church? It was just understood and assumed that if you were born here somewhere in the south, you were a Christian. Especially, you know, in the more rural communities. Um, I'm from farming a farming area, and everybody was a Christian. Everybody said grace before the meal. Every family had a family Bible somewhere on display. Don't, don't ask if I'm a Christian or not. Just know that I am, right? question is where do I go to church and so many of you know you know former generations in your own lineage that are like that or maybe even you directly are coming from that people who are really good at working for God but potentially can miss the relationship the first love the thing that matters I see it I see it a lot here among the people in our area a lot of Martha's who are working hard for Jesus in the kitchen, saying, look at all the things I'm doing for you, and Jesus is in the living room, saying what? I need you to come be like Mary. I don't want you to just stand and sing these songs if you're not singing them to me. Don't say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place, unless you're truly meaning it. like Unless you truly want to commune with me and be with me. Right? I see a lot of it, especially, again, here in the South, the protection of sound doctrine and pushing out false heresies. But, again, what? Missing the relationship with God. And I just wonder here in our own church, like even here today among the folks who are here, how many of us might be missing that? Missing that first love? Missing this beautiful relationship that's the point of it all? When we get to the end of Revelation, There's just going to be a beautiful statement where God says, now my dwelling place is with man. That's the point of it all. I'm restoring what I created in the garden. Our relationship got broken. Now I'm restoring it completely and perfectly. And the point of being a Christian is not all the stuff you do for Jesus. It's that you walk with him. And out of walking with him then, you're serving him is beautiful. You're serving him gives life to others. It gives light into the darkness as long as it's coming out of what? A beautiful relationship with him. And so, regardless of what perspective you may come from in terms of revelation, I I hear this resounding. Wake up call from Jesus. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know, if you go look at this particular area, right now it's modern-day Turkey. Um, There are no established Christian churches. Regardless of your perspective, Jesus has made, it seems like, made good on that. Unless you repent, right, unless you repent... I'm done with you. Unless you turn to me and quit doing all this stuff for me and come spend time with me, what does he say? I will remove your lampstand from its place. And so I hear that personally, right, as a significant warning. Jesus isn't impressed with how much time I spent studying Revelation this week. doesn't make him love me anymore or give me any better stature in his presence. Right? Jesus isn't impressed with how much money I give to the church today. It's not. What Jesus is after today is to, right, to be with me, for me to be with him. The point of salvation is what? To restore relationship. And here's where I want to end today. Like, I don't know where everybody is in the room, so like, I don't want to presume anything. But what we've just heard from, the creator of the world, the king of all kings, is this. I love you. I love you. And do not forsake my love. So I think it would be really healthy for us, especially if you're here today and you call yourself a Christian, to step back and take some inventory. Have you you been drifting towards getting in the routine of just doing a bunch of stuff for God and completely missing the relationship? I, I make this comment often here we are a serving church. Over half, over 50% of the people who attend here are serving somewhere throughout the week. That's huge when you look at a lot of churches in our area. We are a serving church. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not impressed with your serving. I want to be with you. I want to live in you. I want to dwell in you. And so he's inviting you to return to your first love with him. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, here's the good news of Christianity Here it is. You don't have to have it all figured out. And it's not about wearing a certain wardrobe of clothing or giving a certain amount of money or knowing all the words to the songs or a particular style of music. Like all those things are things, right, that we can talk about later. Here's what Jesus wants you to hear. I want to have a relationship with you. I love you. We get this imagery of him coming back ready for battle, ready to go to war, right? He's going to war on on our behalf. And he's saying to you, not only am I, right, armed, mounted, ready for battle, but just as he did with John, he puts his hand on says, but here's the thing, don't be scared. Don't be scared. I love you. I'm the first and the last. I hold the keys to death in Hades. I want you on my team. I want you with me. And so I want you to hear that today. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, Jesus loves you. He's not only died on the cross for you and resurrected from the dead for you, but he's coming back to permanently defeat Satan. And and here's what he's asking of you. Simply believe. That's it. Believe. Believe that he is who he says he is. Now I want to pray for us now. Invite our worship team to come back up. I am going to pray for us today. And, and what God may be doing in your life and speaking to you. Um, I'm excited about where we're going in this series. Um, but two things. We're going to study. We're going to talk about the different perspectives. Always in view of what? The main thing. Right? We're going to do that together. But two, we're always going to ask, how can, how, what does this mean for me? How can I respond to the word of God? Well, let's do that now. Let's pray together as the worship team comes back up. Father, we're so thankful that you've given us this book, Revelation, and God, while we um, there's so much about it we don't fully understand and so much about it that baffles us, God, we know that by reading it out loud, by studying it, by hearing it, by believing it, God, um, that you can work in miraculous ways in our lives. And so, God, I pray for every person here that today would be less about trying to figure out the timing of when Jesus comes back and more about securing that relationship with him right now in this moment and God every person in this room has been invited into a relationship with you through faith in Jesus and so we pray I pray now God that any person here that doesn't know you would take that step today in their own heart and mind to come before you Lord Jesus and say I believe I believe you are who you say you are and I believe that you died for my sins I give my life to you If you're here today and you make a decision to become a Christian or you would like to find out more information about becoming a Christian, I'm going to encourage you to, um, while we sing these last couple of songs, to to come talk with us. Um, Our prayer partners and our elders are going to be back in the back corner um, during these last two songs, and they would love nothing more than to talk with you and pray with you about becoming a Christian. And if you're here today and you realize maybe just like the church in Ephesus, you needed a wake-up call today, um, I'm going to pray for you that today would be a day that you would respond to what the Spirit of God is saying to you. And again, if you would like for somebody to pray with you or talk more with you about that, I'm going to encourage you to talk to one of our prayer partners and allow us to encourage you and pray with you as you make this commitment to pursue Jesus as we stand to sing these songs. We pray you would move in our midst, speak to our hearts. God, work in us in ways that are below the surface. Allow us, God, to experience the power of your presence. God, to leave here completely transformed for your glory. We pray in Jesus' powerful name.